0: And welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jenny B. from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Dr. Elisa Friedman, Professor of Japanese Popular Culture at the University of Oregon. Her new book, Japan on American TV, Screaming Samurai, Join Anime Clubs in the Land of the Lost explores the underlying problems in the representation of Japan in American media by situating it in a larger context of cultural essentialism, racism, and appropriation.
1: Welcome, Elisa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, and you summarized my book so well. Thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Uh, I'm very excited about this book. Uh, It sounds super interesting, and of course, I read it. It was very interesting. You have been writing about Japanese popular culture for a while now. How did you start this uh, project about Japanese representation on American media?
1: Thank you. Thank, Thank you for that excellent question. This book, like many of my other projects comes out of discussions with my students and also my own sort of reflection of what it means to consume popular culture and national images. So to give you sort of a trajectory. Um, In my classes, I teach a a range of popular culture classes, especially um, my focus is Japanese popular culture in the world. And I look at how Japan has been um, sort of packaged for different audiences through both the globalization of Japanese trends and also through interpretations of Japan through other media. And we got to talking in my um, entry level course on Japan, uh, Japanese popular culture in the world about television programs. And students would come to class asking me if I've seen some Saturday Night Live skit or we would discuss some parody that they've seen. And and what I've learned with students, too, um, and we could talk about Chapter five in the book, which presents a pedagogical lesson of um, how professors can learn from students that um, students were bringing in so much content. And what I felt as a teacher that maybe my role could be would be to help provide more context, to help us understand the often cringy content that we were discussing. So the book um, comes from my classes. And if you notice in the acknowledgements, I thank a lot of the students for, for their insights. Also, um, I've tried to focus the book on four di- for four different audiences, for students, of course, for teachers, for scholars and for the general public. Uh, I know that's pretty audacious of me to try to reach so far. But to do this, I've sort of beta-tested chapters with all four audiences. I've given talks at anime conventions about the book, and I'm grateful for that opportunity. I've given talks at scholarly conferences. And a lot of my work is also thanks to my colleague, the late Mark McClellan, who also started this project by organizing a panel on misrepresentations of Japan in global media. So like this book, like so much else I owe to Mark. Uh, and you can see his imprint on a lot of these discussions.
0: That's awesome. Um, so you must, I assume you watch a
1: lot of anime as well? I watch a lot of things, a lot of anime. And this book has helped me to reflect on what I'm doing in my television viewing patterns. As you know, if. if one way, one of the joys of teaching popular culture is being able to talk about things that you like either really like or really bother you with other people. And um, so this book has helped me to reflect on the anime I watch, the television programs I watch, the, the, the um, both in the United States and in japan. and And it's been a difficult book for me to write because I need to think from think about issues from multi-directions and I have to think about a lot of cultural literacy um, about American culture and Japanese culture at the same time.
0: That's great. I'm, yeah. a, I'm sure your students enjoy your class a lot. <laughs> and uh, the cover of this book uh, is quite interesting, and I understand
1: there's a story behind it. Would you mind telling us that story? I'm so glad you asked about that. The The cover was designed by one of my students, his name is William Bowles. Maybe you've had this experience that you've been, during the pandemic, we've been doing so much teaching on Zoom. And I found that some of my students were doodling during my Zoom classes as a fidget or a way to seem focused. And Will in particular was creating these wonderful doodles. And I made a deal with Will that if he doodles during my class, he will, he could help me design the book cover. I actually, I mean, I commissioned him. I, he's an artist. He needs to be acknowledged and, and compensated for his work. But he designed the book cover in uh, after reading parts of the manuscript and thinking about the theme. So I hope this was a positive experience for the students in that respect also.
0: That's, that's truly amazing. I hope all the uh, professors out there and TAs um, <laughs> should, should uh, start collecting our student pseudos now. Um, you mentioned that in one of your talks that this book is meant to make the reader chuckle and cringe. And of course, I for sure cringed a lot while reading this book. But why did you design this book to be so? <gasps>
1: Thank <laughs> you. Want, I, I often get asked that. Why did I write such a cringe-worthy book? And that's my goal. And and this, I, I have to thank Jan Bardsley for her very generous blurb for the book because she wrote that the book makes you cringe, chuckle, and think. And those are my three goals in this book. And also, I thank Anne Allison and, and Bill Sitsui for their wonderful comments on on the on the book. But uh, why cringe? Because I think when we begin to think about a lot of this media is cringeworthy because it comes out of a lot of discourses about Orientalism, for example. Uh, One of the main points of my book is television as being America's, if not the world's, most prevalent and accessible form of popular culture. How does uh, television reflect dominant discourses about nation and also about other facets like gender? Also, but. A lot of this material is so cringy because it comes out of a history from the 1950s through now of how America has negotiated general fears and frustrations and fascinations with Japan and changing relationships between Japan and the United States. So in the early chapters, we see, for example, these horrible racist stereotypes that come out of wartime propaganda being recirculated on American children's cartoons, like Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Not just racist against Japan. These cartoons are very racist, and it makes us cringe when we watch a lot of Bugs Bunny cartoons right now, for example. But in particular, dealing with Japan, looking at how Japan was being negotiated and and packaged and thought of in different ways, from the racist stereotype of Japanese men with buck teeth, round uh, glasses, pig-like noses saying awful racist slurs, to sort of sexualization of and, and uh, desexualization of Japanese women on American television. So I think one reason the book is cringy is because this television's cringy. Another reason I think and I, I when we watch something in cringe, it helps to ask what makes it what makes us cringe. And I hope this book gives us in Bill Sitsui's evaluation of the book a toolbox of tools that we can use to sort of as scaffolds to um, sort of dissect and analyze the components of television. And um the book is more about we look I look closely at the content of television. I wasn't able to, of course, get sort of viewer surveys from the nineteen fifties to see how children in um, for example, in Arizona in nineteen fifty-five were watching um Pixie Dixie and Mr. Jinx, but in looking closely at the text at the programs themselves and looking at the diegesis, the, how things are portrayed on, on screen, the script writing, the, the production. We can learn how these portraits all come together. And, and that whole process, too, is very cringy because we learn certain prejudices, sexism within the industry itself also. So it's long-winded answer to your cringiness. I, I take responsibility for writing a cringy book, but I, I owe the responsibility to back-at-the-television uh, producers for producing such cringy content. And also by teaching cringy text, it takes, I could tell the students, I'm not yelling at them or I'm not criticizing them. Uh, we're looking at text and um, it, it takes the burden a bit, not to say that the students aren't responsible viewers. I hope that this book en- encourages people to watch more actively instead of passively. But by watching text, it gives us another layer to think about the media images around us and how we consume
0: now, when we look at uh, Japan on American TV, I think many people would no- notice this theme of cuteness or kawaii culture. It has for a long time been one of the labels of Japanese popular culture. So what were some of the earliest representations of Japan on American TV that uh, kind of conveys this cuteness culture? And uh, what about this whole concept about of cute Japan?
1: When did this all begin? I love that multi-layered question and I also I like to think of my book as engaging in a larger conversation with my colleagues and I I'd like to bring up Laura Miller's work in, in looking at the multifaceted of Japanese kawaii and what's been globalized and what's been omitted and alighted in that globalization process. I guess what I, what I outline in the book introduction, I look at parodies of cute Japan. The book is about parodies and parody, as you know, is when you extend one aspect or, or facet for comedic relief. But parody also makes things seem unintimidating, less threatening. When we can laugh at, at things that threaten us, it, it, they, it makes those things seem less uh, horrible or, or less threatening. Cute is part of this process, too. I've been influenced by work that looks at the hegemony and the um, sort of politics of cute. And by cutifying something, we make it diminutive. And cute itself, like when you look at Japan parodies, um, and I'll get to your question, excellent question about the historization of cute. But a lot of the common tropes you see on cute Japan on television is making Japan seem diminutive, small, adorable. Um, taking samurai and making them seem goofy and, and less harmful, taking sort of um, representations of, a, of Japanese cultural artifacts of architecture, making them colorful and bright and immediately recognizable. So I'm loosely defining cute, but I'm trying to engage with concepts of kawaii via Lara Miller's work, Christine Yano's work, um, a wonderful book that came out on the aesthetics and effects of cuteness about how kawaii is, uh, to borrow loosely Christine Yano's work, one of the world's most um, manipulative and vulnerable forms of cute. I know Chris doesn't say this exactly in her work, but um, like Hello Kitty, when we look at Hello Kitty, there's certain aesthetics of cuteness. We see kawaii characters like Hello Kitty, Pikachu, and arguably in my other work, Smiling Poop Emoji. As having big heads, big uh, eyes to show emotion, small facial features like button noses or Hello Kitty no mouth for various reasons. But kawaii characters are also squishy, like Pikachu, um, sort of this kind of fluffiness. All of these aspects sort of get interwoven into visual depictions of Japan. Extended more so, we see more direct representations of kawaii when we get to program like programs like Trey Parker's South Park. And Trey Parker being very aware of kawaii aesthetics. But um, I have defining cute Japan loosely. Like I, I, the first programs I look at are the 1950s, the programs that dominated television, especially for children, in the 1950s cartoons. And you might argue that, that you know, Fred Flintstone's not exactly cute. But these programs sort of cutify their use of Japan by taking a Japanese judo instructor, for example, putting certain attributes that make that judo instructor seem smaller, diminutive, less threatening, and funneling it through a lens of aesthetic discourses. And cute is not just how you look, cute is how you perceive another person too, or another character. Like when we say, oh, isn't that cute? Like we're we're making a commentary also about our own judgment towards something. So I I trace ideas of cute in various ways. I also look at, for example, how Marie Kondo in her Netflix program is very aware of stereotypes. I think she's brilliant in this. Not just stereotypes of Japanese women, but stereotypes of American women in her Japanese media. But Kondo in her performance of her Netflix program plays up her cuteness. She has a gesture, for example, for I love mask you. She, um, her, the American families that she helps in her program make comments like, oh, you seem so cute, but really you're powerful. So not only I'm exploring how Maria Kondo looks, but that whole process of calling someone cute regarding someone as cute, I think is integral to understanding the power dynamics and Japan also has been sort of funneled, as we know, through the 1990s, especially through the globalization uh, increasingly of certain forms of popular culture, certain forms of anime, manga, for example, that use kawaii. Like in Chapter 5, I also directly engage with how fans sort of cutify uh, kawaii Japan in a meta-parody for Saturday Night Live called J-Pop America Funtime Now. So again, another super long-winded answer. I apologize. But I... I try to use cute as a heuristic device, not just everything as being one only kind of cute, but cute as a main lens to understand the process of how we look at how we treat and how Japan is also packaged and has packaged itself, arguably in various ways. And and again, if I could write a sequel to this book, I'd love to include shows like Iron Chef and, and other important Japanese programs that have been incredibly influential. Um, in America and globally, but this is a book about parodies. Sorry, I I'm talking too No, <laughs>
0: it's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I have a lot to say about Iron Chef, uh, both the oh, Japanese I... version and the American version, but I'd like to uh, re- return to the Maria Kondo points maybe later. Um, so early in the book, earlier in the book, you said that some of the famous American shows uh, that began to feature acute Japan image from a very early time. You mentioned Sesame Street and The Simpsons. Um, When I watched them, I definitely did not realize this when I was younger, but what elements in Sesame Street, for example, do you observe that reflect this kind of interpretation of Japanese Japanese culture and um, what kind of social background of America do they reflect?
1: I love your questions. You're you're such a smart reader and you ask such thoughtful questions. And thank you for asking about chapter three of the book on uh, Big Bird in Japan and also how the program Sesame Street in the United States and Sesame Street in Japan engage with each other. Um, As many people who know me know that I am a lifetime Sesame Street fan and I'm very excited about as of uh, 2021, fall 2021, the new Muppet who Ji Young, the new Muppet, has a lot to shoulder on her little Muppet shoulders of dealing with systemic racism in various respects. But um, what, what drew, drew me to Sesame Street in this book is, I don't know if, if you watched this, I, um, in, there was a program from way back in 1989 called Big Bird in Japan. And it was a sequel to Big Bird in, uh, Big Bird in China. And uh, these are the only two times that the American television children's program, Sesame Street, has ever traveled abroad. So already that raised the question for me, why why Japan is number two? China, that was a very interesting program, and I highly recommend watching it. Um, Big Bird was able to travel to Beijing, for example, before many Americans could. Um, before travel had been opened more broadly. But um, in the Japan episode, every Sesame Street episode, the purpose of American Sesame Street is not to teach English language. It's to teach compassion and multiculturalism. But when the program was, it, the Sesame Street became the very first international program or American program at least imported in Japan to teach English. And it was very difficult. It failed in that respect in 1971 onward. Because if you watch Sesame Street, they speak New York slang. The the English is hard to understand. It's, they speak faster than I do. But so in part, the program Big Bird in Japan was a joint venture to help promote Sesame Street in Japan. But it was also a joint venture to um, expand upon. It was produced at a time in the United States in the 1980s. Of a time of Japan bashing, to borrow a term now, this anti-Japan uh, hate that was going on in Japan, the fears of Japan's economic power, buying up American properties like movie studios and important buildings. Um, but Big Word in Japan was created and first shown on Japanese television, then on American television, had commercial sponsors like JAL Airlines, and it was loosely set on a folktale Taketori Monogatari. Or Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, but it's cute in the way that Sesame Street is cute. It uses sort of cute Muppets, for example. And you could argue Big Bird is not kawaii, but Big Bird needs to be accessible in the way that cute things are to children. Like, and aside, when Cookie Monster was first created in the nineteen sixties, Cookie Monster had fangs, which was not cute and scared children. So the fangs had to disappear. But one way that that Sesame Street also, in the lens that I look through cute, cute, defies Japan, is by making Japan during the bubble economy era of the 1980s seem harmless, non-threatening, and arguably pastoral. I know all those things are different from cute, and I'll, I'll loop back on this. But um, in the program, Big Bird is left behind by a harried bus guide. And, and if you know that bus guides are the people in Japanese popular culture film uh, literature also, who are over-anxious over about punctuality. So this gives Big Bird a chance and his good friend Barkley the dog to do what they really came to Japan to do, to experience what they think is Japanese life, namely people who live in houses made out of paper and wood. And so they get to see traditional Japanese architecture and live with a Japanese family who have two adorable children, not to diminu- <laughs> make those children seem diminutive, they also are are intentionally cute in the program. But Big Bird also, through the program, acknowledges that Japan is very corporate, modern, and there's a lot of goofy jokes as Sesame Street. Sesame Street is a program premised on vaudeville and parody. It it runs on parody. But... uh, How it cutifies Japan, I argue, is by making Japan seem a place of funny, twisted trees, people living in paper houses, children uh, speaking Japanese, that seems non-threatening, adorable, accessible, foreign. The kind of place that you would want to visit and say, aw, rather than the kind of place that you would see in Newsweek magazine on the cover saying, you know, Sony buys Columbia, uh, you know, all these all these inroads, people, uh, car companies building up, opening factories in Ohio and elsewhere. So again, Qt works on multi-layers, both in the content and the form of the program and the characters, but also in the way that national countries, especially Japan in this case, is seen in this para-hierarchy with the United States and all these programs, America's the victor, Japan, American characters are the ones who have to explain Japan to other Americans, and arguably in South Park, to Japan. So this idea of um, this sort of Japan that is packaged through this curatorial process based on hegemony. Sorry, my answers
0: are so long-winded. <laughs> no, you're absolutely fine. They're they're so interesting, and I'm learning um, so much from um, your answers. Now that we mention American as the victor, I want to uh, turn to one of the other themes that your book covered, which is the war. So, war history is, of course, another important, um, I guess, uh theme or a commonly featured in some stereotypes when it comes to Japan or American TV. Works like The Simpsons or South Park that you just mentioned, they're commonly recognized for their references to political and social issues. So how do these shows portray Japan within their animated sitcom realm, and what does that mean for the reception or understanding of Japan through such kinds of portraits?
1: Excellent. Thank you. And one thing I guess I'm glad you mentioned watching these programs. And one thing I hope with this book is I hope this book sort of has a nostalgia value and also, again, a cringy nostalgia, thoughtful nostalgia value of of asking us to go back and think about the programs we've watched in the past and look at them in new ways. When I was watching programs like The Simpsons in Japan from the 1990s, or, or when you look at all the spinoffs of animated sitcoms made possible by The, uh, by the Simpsons, and the um, format of the animated sitcom was some, uh, arguably set up in certain ways by the Flintstones in the 1960s. But then the, the uh, media format, television format, laid dormant really until it was resuscitated by The Simpsons. But since The Simpsons, all these um, animated sitcoms all feature an episode in Japan. King of the Hill, Futurama, even Rick and Morty now, everything has Japan episodes. So how this chapter, chapter four, started, I kept asking why. I mean, granted, The Simpsons have traveled to about at least 30 different countries, and they always return to Springfield, Oregon. I know other states have have claimed Springfield, but it's Oregon. I'm sorry, I'm a bit biased. And Matt Groening has roots in Oregon. But um, this idea of sitcoms being set in Japan and engaging in Japan really also gives this kind of cutification. Like when you watch The Simpsons, The Simpsons, like South Park, like King of the Hill is a little bit different. But the jokes flow so quickly, it doesn't really give you the viewer time to stop and think. You keep laughing because the gags keep coming one after another. But there's so much Japan in The Simpsons, everything from making fun of 1990s um, trends like um, expensive Japanese prices for tourists or um, game shows to um, Miyazaki Hayao films when they began to globalize more. So um, The Simpsons South Park, what was notable to me is these were made for audiences in the 1990s that don't have war memory. Mainly, I think the same kind of audience that would maybe gravitate to a network like Toonami, or watch perhaps early um, television broadcasts of anime, or broader audiences interested in that kind of humor, the, as he's mentioned, the kind of cringy humor, political humor offered by South Park that comes on, on a network in live television era, the Comedy Network, um, sandwiched in a time spot near The Daily Show. Um, so intentionally, these people that would be the target viewership would not be the people who have fought in World War II primarily. Um, again, the commercials show us that a lot of these programs were aimed at a demographic that would be sort of oriented toward people in their 20s and 30s. But why did World War II, the last war that America has, has won, why does this keep coming up over and over was the question? That I decided to think out, and I think this is directly tackled in a few of these programs, especially King of the Hill, in a double episode in which uh, the characters go back to Japan because the grandfather character wants to re-meet a woman he knew during the war. And it leads into another discourse that often happens in these programs of the characters engaging with the Japanese emperor, which also means that these programs can't be shown on Japanese television. In South Park, Trey Parker in so many Japan episodes is um, brilliant and so cringy and so wonderful. In this engagement of um, how the South Park, five kawaii uh, characters that use kawaii um, aesthetics in, their, in the way the heads are shaped and the eyes are formed, no necks and other features, how they often uh, engage with Japanese popular culture. There'll be a Japanese trend that'll set off the ch- the five the children of the town. And then the adults would like to understand the trend to understand the children and perhaps stop the trend. But all of these trends lead back to World War II, either Japan trying to avenge the United States for uh, World War II in the wonderfully cringy Chin Pokémon, penis pokemon. To whale whores, where bands of angry Japanese men are attacking, uh, this is the premise of that program, attacking whales and dolphins, even the Miami Dolphins football team in the United States, to get revenge on a picture of the Enola Gay, the plane that dropped the bomb, uh, the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, being shown to be piloted by a whale and a dolphin. So, the long winded answer again is uh, one thing I've been trying to unpack is why this constant reference to World War II, the last war in America has won, and animated sitcoms made for an audience that doesn't have war memories. I think one reason is is because World War II is such a powerful referent when we look at the relationship between Japan and the United States, and uh, a powerful way, catalyst in setting off a lot of these power dynamics on television. It's also instantly recognizable to many people. It becomes a uh, sort of a time, a, a, an event that is viewed in certain mainstream programs with a sense of American pride. Again, I'm not trying to to over I'm, I'm not trying to paper over the really cringy, horrible historical memories behind these, but I think that when we look at what's going on in that poignant King of the Hill episode, we may come to better understand how these wartime memories are continually repackaged in our popular culture today.
0: That is so fascinating. And actually now I'm curious, did you leave out um, discussions of movies because there are just too many elements
1: like this in them? It's another really excellent question. I think television and film are doing different things. And you're right. There's just so many. And I hope, and there's been many wonderful books written about American film engagement. And and my book too draws so much inspiration from Christina Klein's work on American middle-brow media too in the 1950s. I, I think television, one, has different viewer patterns. Like to go to a movie theater is used to be at least pre-pandemic, a very different experience. Like now we have more streaming films coming directly to Netflix and, and other platforms. But television used to be like in in the 1950s, especially when television sets became more affordable, 60s, 70s, 80s. Now we have different kinds of TV viewing patterns. I asked my class yesterday how many students have actually watched a live television program recently and nobody raised their hands. Uh, but you can still watch all these programs through various, uh, various sites. But film... When you go to watch a film, it's two hours, two and a half hours. or there about different story arts, different audiences, different commercial sponsorship, different advertisers. So I wanted to look specifically at the media of television. here. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. Um, now,
0: one of the most common tropes that we see on these TV shows, and I guess sometimes in movies as well, is this Yamato Nadeshiko, or ideal Japanese women image. And like you said before, just a, a bit earlier, recently, Maria Kondo and the team behind her managed to combine this with religious elements like Shinto and elevate cleaning to an almost spiritual level. I found that quite um, amusing. But this uh, whole phenomenon, this cold phenomenon, largely owes to streaming services, again, in America. So in the case of Maria Kondo, what kind of cultural stereotypes does it entail and how?
1: Such an excellent question. And I decided to make Kon Maria or Marie Kondo the last chapter of the book because I think she draws together a lot of power dynamics and, and also sort of mobilizes them in some very intriguing ways. And I, I read her series alongside another Netflix series, Queer Eye, where in Japan with the Fab Five. the, the uh, the five men in in Queer Eye, that also both Queer Eye, Fab Five, and, and Kondo promote tidiness as a way of getting your life together. They're not the world's first organizers, but they're the ones who have been able to successfully mainstream this idea of tidiness as being more than having a clean room. But when you learn the process of rituals of tidying, rules of tidying, you learn to live more mindfully and, and better assess your own relationships. So cool Mari Marie Kondo is so brilliant in, in this in many ways. And, and I think it, what she does in her own media, she um, mobilizes, this is my argument. She doesn't use the term Yamato Nadeshko to the best of my knowledge in her programming, but she uses this idea of how Japanese women have been sort of idealized through a, a constellation of discourses. Like, for example, this idea of a Japanese, idealized Japanese woman being associated with domesticity, being a good wife and wise mother, being someone who is strong and competent but not boastful, being someone who is accessible and doesn't yell at you. Like, I, I think part of Marie Kondo's success is because she doesn't yell at you like Gordon Ramsay style. She, you know, she's, she seems like the teacher we all want she's encouraging, but yet she's strict. And I think she also dresses the part of a Yamatona Like if you watch NHK television dramas, especially the morning television uh, series that are on around eight o'clock, eight, eight 15 in the morning, that the female heroines often wear sort of a, a light makeup. They often have bangs. They often dress in a style that is not flashy. They look different. But it's fun to look at uh, stereotypes of Marie Kondo against stereotypes of anime characters. But Kondo wears predominantly white, uh, not to look Western or any kind of stereotype of whiteness, but white is associated in her discourses with cleanliness. And also when you're doing business in Japan, you often cover your shirt, you wear a cardigan, or it'd be awkward if she showed up in someone's house in a business suit. But notably, there was a fictionalized television drama based on her method of tidiness and mindfulness, um, in which the fictional character came to people's houses dressed in a white suit. But um, Kondo packages herself and she's very aware of the camera on her. Um, The way, my students and I were talking about this the other day, the way when she walks into a home, the characters are often positioned, the American eight American families chosen by Kondo Marie Media which is headed by her husband, and in which and it's based in Los Angeles. And Kondo kept her maiden name, which is interesting in her brand. She's very aware of branding also and offers us so many important lessons. But when you look closely at even watching the first episode and pausing, you can see Kondo, for example, sits on the floor. The American family sits on the sofa. This could be cultural in part. Um, many people in Japanese homes, uh, the way... I love sitting around a kotatsu table in the winter. That's really cozy. But um, you could also say the way the camera positions the families in a way that makes Kondo seem like an outsider coming inside the home. Kondo also sort of mobilizes this idea of um, the, the foreign guru who could come in and sort of present a different packaging of knowledge. I, I know she's been looked at in Shinto and she did work as a shin, in a Shinto shrine at age 18, to the best of my knowledge. I've tried to follow this through with with writings that she's written and interviews she's given. But I also think if you look at her website, there's so many interpretations of Zen in, in her goods. Like she'll, or what, Kondo's not telling us to minimalize our belongings. She wants us to buy things and buy things from her. She's, she's not telling us to own, she's telling us to own things more intentionally, but she'll sell us lots of things that we'll need to ask ourselves in a little bit if they give us joy, if we're going to keep them or not. <laughs> but um, not to be snarky, I think she, what she's doing is, is very savvy, but she's looking at, in, in her American website, she sells a lot of things that she calls Japanese heritage items. And many of them are premised on sort of packaging of um, a certain kind of upscale very shibui, very um, sort of sophisticated, fashionable, zen-inspired, if you will. Japanese kind of popular culture that has been popular in certain subsets in the United States for a long time. Um, Megan Mettler argues this very well in her book. Or you look at, for example, John Leisure's work on um, the house at MoMA, this kind of sophisticated Japanese style she brings into her website. I'm not saying she, she does that in her television program, but that the I, I'm not. I, I just am trying to read her religiosity, re- use of religion in in sort of popular culture ways. I think um, I had this. I'll just share this last anecdote. And um, I was teaching Kondo's program, um, the Netflix program, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. We were also looking at its predecessor, the NHK World series, in which it's um, it, which inspired the American program. And, and looking at how Kondo engages. And we got into this good class discussion I found very helpful. The students said outright that they would let Marie Kondo into their homes, no problem. And they'd be very eager to learn from her, but they would not let in Mark Kondo, or Kondo Maresque. they would not let him in. And I asked them why, why wouldn't they let Mark Kondo if Marie Kondo, for example, were an American man? Why would they have a reaction to him helping them tidy? And they said, because of the way stereotypes have been conceived. And, and also, there's something, it's not just because Kondo, Marie Kondo uses stereotypes, she's also incredibly brilliant in constructing cre- her method. Students also brought up copyright infringement in Mark Kondo's part. <laughs> Granted, that is an issue. But we also began to think about why, how we would react, or how people react to a woman entering their home versus a man. And how, we, how this is also associated with our ideas of Japan and nation. So I think Kondo offers, her program on Netflix offers us so much to talk about. About cultural essentialism and also self-orientalizing and orientalizing. I actually couldn't make it through the uh, Netflix show of
0: Mari, Maria Kondo. I couldn't make it through the first 10 minutes. But I did finish the other show that you mentioned, uh, Queer Wear in Japan. And I have to say I did cringe a lot when watching it Um, this may be my personal um, opinion but I I feel like the kind of Japan or Japanese people that was presented on this show falls in line with some of the most stereotypical readings of Japan's characteristics since perhaps um, the second world war after the wartime since when Ruth Benedict wrote Mm -hmm. a book about
1: Japan's characteristics. Um, so can you talk more about this part? I love that question. And, and I'm so glad you brought in this kind of chrysanthemum and the sword mentality that keeps coming back. And what's one of the things about Orientalism, I think, as a, as a discourse, Orientalism is premised on texts that are supposed to build knowledge, but they tend to be self-perpetuating discourses. Um, and often the people that are being Orientalized are not the people who are given the chance to do the most speaking. And, and I'm, I'd be interested to hear two of your views of why you couldn't make it through Marie Kondo's program. I, I, I could understand, I, many images are going through my mind about why, but, but Queer Eye, I think, offers this kind of binary contrast between the over expressive American and the mystical Japanese in certain ways. But at the same time, the five people that the Fab Five intend to so called fix. Are people that represent stereotypes and certain media issues that have been hyped up? Like for example, we have an otaku couple. We have a woman who feels that she is less of a of, of, of a woman per se because she's not in a heteronormative relationship and they're trying to fix her so she could go on a date. Uh, it's very cringy and and oftentimes part of the 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 not the backlash, but in this program, and I think a lot of this is lost a bit in the program, which makes it also an interesting pedagogical tool, that the Fab Five come in and they're wonderful. They've they've done so much self-growth and have done so much for so many people. And a lot of their ideas are premised on this belief in a certain kind of activism, that you are out loud and proud. You live your truth. But in going to Japan, they're not willing to bend in that ideology, nor in many ways should they. But they're not also not willing to listen to what's going on around them, and this can result in a bit of tone deafness. Um, For example, as you mentioned so well, they tend to perpetuate certain longstanding stereotypes of Japanese people. Like there was a a program in which... um, they were, they, again, the, the, like Marie Kondo too, the Fab Five come in with this view that their way is the right way and they're going to teach the locals their way. They're not going to learn from the locals. They're go, Marie Kondo does this too, but they're going to come do the thing and leave, still being their same wonderful selves. And I think part of the growth is lost on that, especially at the ending of statements of Queer Ride. I think it's a wonderful program. And again, like Sesame Street, only the second time that the program has traveled abroad. The first time was to Yas, Australia, because of course the you know, they should go to Yas. Yes, honey. Yes, queen. Um, a tagline from the program. But as you mentioned so well, it, it the self perpetuating Orientalist views, if you will. And, and I'm not trying to bash the program. And again, in my book, I hope I don't show the televisions wrong. But what I'm trying to do is to get us to chuckle and cringe so that we think. But the one way interactions between the presentations and choice of five people that dramatize certain media discourses and clashing with this idea that the way to handle, for example, bullying is to learn judo and uh, feel fierce, dress your best, and be proud of yourself. But it's not looking at the systemic... Underlying patterns, or, or acknowledging that there's diversity in gender norms in Japan too. Um, I'm not. I'm sort of talking around your question because your question's so excellent that I'm trying to give it more thought. But let me draw back to an example. Like, there's certain um, interesting uses of Japanese culture, and I think they're they're very fascinating interpretations in queer eye. Like, in one episode, what the what um, are the members of the of the group takes the Japanese man who wants to have a better relationship with his wife to learn ikebana so he could give her a, a flowers as a romantic gift. And we see that's a direct... Okay, ikebana is not usually a romantic gesture, but okay. That's <laughs> um, an interesting interpretation. But it, it hits at more of the stereotypes, like when we're facing a situation in the first episode of a woman who is in her 40s or 50s who has done... Um, interesting things in her career, she's established a hospice. Um, she, I've tried to Google her to find out more, and, and a lot of the things I find on public websites are more about how she was in the program. But looking at her through the lens of how Japanese women are supposed to behave, I'm not saying the Queer eyes advocating for gender binaries, but I think their influence or, or their team that produced the program has intentionally s- selected people that perpetuate This media stereotype of Japan we have of sexless marriages or women who feel that they have given up on being a woman because they're not dating and and trying to sort of show Japan in that light. Like this is Japan. It's a country of sexless people. Or this is Japan. It's a country of otaku. Or this is Japan. It's a country of where people have to um, hide their truth. But I think one way to avoid that kind of chrysanthemum of the sword, you're either, you know, the pacifist or, or you're the, the militant or, or these kind of binaries that we have fit Japan into to understand it historically in America. Be it through Ruth Benedict, through Roland Barthes, through all these books of people who, who try to understand either by going there or studying Japan. Uh, Queer Eye fits that discourse into that discourse and takes it into inter- an intersection of variables in so many spectacular and thoughtful ways. Uh, thoughtful ways as teachers too, that gives us so much to talk about. I think one way to solve that problem would be to listen a bit more in the program to some of the people who are experts in the field. Like there's these teaching moments where Watanabe Naomi, who's someone I tremendously admire, the comedian, or um, other characters who are... Uh, uh, the guides of, of the Fab Five are trying to explain to them, like, it doesn't exactly work this way, not because they're Japanese and they understand Japan because foreigners will never do so, because they understand Japan because they have thought about it, studied about it and and reflected on these issues in ways that the program goes in, does its thing and leaves. Am I making sense in this? Yes, your yes, question yes, absolutely. So excellent. I don't intend to bash the program because I think the program does some really thought-provoking things. But I think part of the trouble with the program is the lack of discussion engaged in, in, in that I think it's a missed opportunity to have larger conversations about how Japan is one packaged in American media, and about what how the diversity and intersections of people and values that are being depicted on the program.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I mean, I love the concept. I love that they're trying to empower people. They're Mm -hmm. trying to bring out the confidence in people. Even with Maria Kondor, she's just trying to use tidying to um, help people fix their lives if they really need it not sure if that happens but um i feel like personally and this is just my one viewer's opinion i thought that their solutions sometimes stay at a materialistic level and they don't really go down to the um problems of say thinking patterns or anything like that but um so we've talked about these Representations or in many cases misrepresentations the, they, they're often quite deliberate like we see in Maria Condor or um, Sesame Street, uh, South Park and I want to um, talk about cultural misrepresentation as the um, toward the end of our conversation. So this is something people can easily fall into if they're not trained with keen eyes or if they're not educated about cross-cultural understanding. So moving forward, what do you think that media can do to showcase a more complete version of Japan or really any other country? And as educators of Japanese studies, what can academics or what can teachers do to help our students better understand what they're seeing on TV.
1: That is so excellent. And thank you for that. And thank you for your comment about materialism in Queer Eye and, and Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Um, Yeah. It's to, I think, I hope this small book, and I'm very grateful to AAS, to the, um, book series to to John Wilson and, and uh, who's an amazing editor. I hope this little book with a small message can be a call, a little book with a big message, I hope. <laughs> um, take that back. I want it to be a big message. Um, not Not because I think I'm great, just because I think that these issues are very important to talk about. And I hope this book can be a call to action for us, not just television producers. I hope I hope this book reaches television producers. I would love to have a conversation with the people who produce Queer Eye and say, yeah, can you include me in your next shoot? Can I go with you to Japan? I'm, I'm not an expert in all the issues you're dealing with, but I think as people who study other cultures, be it Japan, be it China, be it anywhere... Um, I think it's so important to learn other cultures, the language, to be able to be culturally literate, to understand a a culture's belief systems, its history, because when you have that knowledge, it really helps you to have better communication, Not, not, not just with that culture, but to be a better world citizen. So I hope this book is encouraging us to watch television more actively. And not just television, but other media around us. And to think about, this is so important always, but especially now, what these images are doing, what they're saying, and how the history behind them, and the kind of Roland Barthes uh, semiotic mythologies that underlay them. Like when we watch something on television, if we pause and look at what's going on in a television program, we learn a lot about Japan and how Japan has been stereotyped, misrepresented, but stereotypes are for better or for worse, premised on at least a kernel of some sort of reality. I'm not saying stereotypes are right, but I think stereotypes, and I think we shouldn't have stereotypes, but I think stereotypes can get us to cringe and think about how we behave toward people. Like I hope my students like Mark Kondo into their uh, out, into their dorm rooms now. But um, <laughs> so I, I, the call is not just to television, producers, it's also to viewers to watch actively think cringe. And I think viewers also have a say in what we consume. Like if if we stop watching a lot of these cringy programs, I'm not saying they'll go away. But I also think that a lot of viewers become producers. And people who produce television come out of... Watching patterns, and and writing this book has helped me to reflect about the echo chamber that I've created for myself when I watch television, the programs I gravitate toward and how I view things. But I also with television producers, I guess the solution would be to do more research, to to, to hire academics. It would be wonderful to I, I, maybe we could go for the next shoot for for these series. but also, I know that that television programs have used consultants. And fair enough, I think that's and and many producers are very savvy in this, but I think also what my book hopes to model is I hope to um, show how important our study of Asian studies is. Like we could do so many different things when we have a knowledge of not just Japan but Japan's relationship with other countries, the history of Japanese culture, and as as you're doing it in your amazing work, looking at How culture itself has been discursively constructed and and what we consider to be an auth and a cultural producer. But as um, I hope the book models that another way of using our our knowledge of Asian studies. And I'm not writing this book as an American studies specialist. If I had another years to go back and get a second PhD, perhaps. But I'm really trying to look at how. Years of researching, teaching, thinking about Japanese trends that have their origin points in Japan have really been negotiated in different ways in Tokyo, where I've lived, in Oregon, where I've lived, and in other places. So the book also is interdisciplinary in its approach. I I look at cultural texts, mainly television, using an approach premised on text, my background in literature for example, my background in film studies. But I also looked at it a bit, and and I know this is going to sound strange, a bit ethnographically. Not that I'm interviewing subjects for this book, but I'm looking at what it means to be a television viewer, what it means to be someone who is in a setting that is consuming certain national images and is having to think about their own background and their own positionality as they view them so again a call to action for all four audiences if you will or, and any any television producers i hope that they continually include more academics in the in the media making process that would be that would lead to some very you know critically engaged interpretations
0: Yes, I definitely I definitely agree with that part. Please hire me to yeah. help you with um, Tokugawa,
1: anything on Tokugawa. Oh, there's so much. <laughs> okay, oh, That would be amazing. I want to watch that program. <laughs>
0: yes. Well, this has been amazing, truly. It's been so illuminating. And uh, I'm sure your students really appreciate that you wrote a book for them. And this will continue to benefit other students as well. So thank you. And thank you for this
1: conversation as well. Thank you. You asked such thoughtful questions. I'm, I'm so impressed by how much thought you've given the book and, and how you think about the the culture, the really big cultural issues and themes that you asked about. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I was able to do that because this is a great book. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I hope our listeners uh, get a chance to check out this book as well. Uh, Japan on American TV, Screaming Samurai, John Anime Club's In the Land of the Lost by Dr. Elisa Friedman. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you in my next episode.